Hello, I'm Todd Melby. I'm the Black Gold Boom Reporter, and this is Main Street on Prairie Public. And today our guest is uh, Lisa Westberg-Peters. She's the author of Fractured Land, The Price of Inheriting Oil. Welcome to the program, Lisa. Thank you. One of the things that, that really fascinated me was this idea of North Dakota getting oil fever long, long before uh, the Iverson well in 1951, yes. which, which most North Dakotans think of as that was when it all started. That was the big hit, was yeah. the Iverson well in 1951. But your book talks about oil speculation going back decades, going back to the 1920s. There was definitely activity. It wasn't like the activity today, but um, the determined people kept going and kept going. They, they knew there was oil down there. They just didn't know quite how to get it. The technology wasn't very good. They often drilled in places where oil existed, but they couldn't get it out. Yeah, and one of the newspapers um, in 1928 ran a headline that said, Oil Driller is sure Nesson Dome okay. Yes. <laughs> so those terms, Nesson and Anticline, of course, appears in some of the ads. Um, those terms were, were bandied about in the press um, very early on. And I'm sure my grandfather was reading those. You know, the irony, of course, now is that the land he bought to get in on oil hasn't been as productive or profitable as the land he bought north of Tioga, where they've done more drilling. And there are complicated reasons for that. Um, the oil industry is, in my opinion, massively confusing, <laughs> and oil rights and all of that. And I make a point of that in the book that it's all pretty mysterious to me. And you suggest that it's intentionally mysterious because the oil companies want to confuse mineral rights holders so that they can hold the cards? I think there's, of course, some of that. They, they like to be in charge. I'm not a political person or an oil commission person. I'm just a writer investigating my family history. I don't know what all the motivations are. I just know that oil drilling and mineral leases petroleum geology are far more complicated than I had imagined. Tell us about this inverted canoe and why the anticline <laughs> was the thing where they thought oil was underneath it. <laughs> well, a really quick geology lesson. In the old days, the conventional oil drilling went straight down. They drilled straight down. And they typically found oil, or they were searching for oil that had originally been in porous rocks, sandstones and limestones. And because the rock was porous, it would rise in the earth, it would escape from those foundations and collect under less porous rocks. And so often those less porous rocks formed a dome. And that's an anticline. And it, it's kind of a domed feature that you sometimes can see expressed on the surface of the land. and Way back, a U.S. geological survey scientist found this anti anticline in Williams County, and that's what started all the action with oil drilling. So anyway, my grandfather purchased land right on the Nesson anticline, and I finally, when I phrased my question a different way to my uncle, um, I asked him. There were two Oscar had purchased land in two separate areas, 10 miles north of Tioga and 10 miles south of Tioga. You know, the irony, of course, now is that the land he bought to get in on oil hasn't been as productive or profitable as the land he bought north of Tioga, 
where they've done more drilling. My question is, why didn't my people go to Williston and Tioga? Why did we end up in Hedinger? <laughs> I don't know. I can't answer that question. <laughs> exactly. Well, there's this great photo in your book um, showing an orchestra or a band that's playing in front of a, a drilling rig in the late 1920s. And it's the big Viking oil company near the Missouri Bluffs, east of Williston in the late 1920s. So they're, they're having a fundraiser to try to get investors to invest in this oil company, in the late 1920s near Williston. Yes, it's it's amazing. There there was definitely activity. It wasn't like the activity today, but um, the determined people kept going and kept going. They, they knew there was oil down there. They just didn't know quite how to get it. The technology wasn't very good. They often drilled in places where oil existed, but they couldn't get it out. And just to get back to the the big Viking oil company, I guess you know some of some of the language in these ads in the late twenties was so was so fantastic. And to think that you know this was, you know, eighty ninety years before the Bakken really hit it big, that it's just kind of fun to go back and look at some of the language and also think about the time. Um, these were bad economic times in America. This is just before the 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 stock market crash right, of nineteen twenty nine. Absolutely. So here here's just some of the language that you quote from the big Viking oil company. You write. And this is quoting up from their ad. And here it is. We've got drilling action. <laughs> Make all checks payable to the big Viking oil company. Right. It was pretty outrageous. And, and, and occasionally they worded it to put responsibility for the drilling action on North Dakotans saying, you asked for this action. Okay, we're going to do it. It's, we're doing it because you asked for it. <laughs> and probably that's true. Why do you think investing and possible oil action and holding on to the, the mineral rights. What do you think that says about, you know, your family's tie-in with sort of sort of the American psyche of, of optimism, of always, always hoping that good times are just around the corner? When I was investigating all, all of this family history, I was so struck by how they followed all the trends. They didn't break any new ground in terms of breaking the rules or launching out on a different path. They they followed the Swedish emigration. You know, when people were starving in Sweden, they left Sweden along with thousands and thousands of other people. They tried to get homestead free homestead land in western Minnesota and of course western North Dakota, along with thousands and thousands of other Scandinavian Americans. They tried to get on the in on the oil like thousands of other North Dakotans. I was really struck by how my grandfather kept his spirit of optimism in spite of all the heartache and hardship and tragedy that that he had endured his entire first family died from infectious diseases it, you know many people died many homesteaders right. died right his his wife died his or... wife died his three children died one lingered until he was a teenager but he had tuberculosis so he maintained his optimism. He was a cheery guy, and I see that today expressed in my in my uncle, who is 92, and he still has Oscar's spirit of optimism. It's amazing for me to see. So when did your family first begin receiving royalty checks? I suppose it was in 1955 or so. Um, my grandfather signed his first lease in 1950 before oil was discovered in North Dakota. And that 
well didn't pan out, but other wells eventually did. The 1954 well did, and he re started receiving money about 1955. He died in 1956. So it was only a little, only a little while he got to see the fruits of the, that risk-taking. Was the money enough to make a difference? Was it in the thousands of dollars? I have a photocopy of one of what I assume was his first check, and it was for 3000 They must have celebrated. I assume they celebrated that day. <laughs> and he made a photocopy of it, or whatever they called photocopies in those days. It wasn't uh, Xerox, I'm sure. But, um, yeah, I'm guessing they were pretty happy. As you were growing up in St. Paul, was there enough oil money to make a difference in your family's life, or did you even realize it? No, it didn't make a difference, although although I should add a P.S. to that. My parents did sell some mineral rights a little bit in order to build a cabin, a summer cabin, on the St. Croix River in Wisconsin. And I, I guess I pinned that site to the place where I became an environmentalist or became somebody who cares about the environment. It was, it was profits from oil that allowed me to care about the environment. <laughs> yeah, that is a big, big irony. It is. <laughs> so, so if it wasn't for the selling of the mineral rights, your family wouldn't have been able to afford this pristine land in, yes. in western Wisconsin. That's true. Yeah, it's, it is strange. It was strange for me to realize that. Again, I didn't know before I started researching the book. And um, for me as a writer, the the best part about writing is making discoveries. And even if they're a little odd or unpleasant or somehow unexpected, um, discovery is the main, is the thing that pulls me through any any writing project. And just to give uh, listeners a sense of your, your politics for someone who came of age during the 1960s, um, you write in the book that in 1971, you wrote, uh, quote, I become a Swedish-American hippie freak protester. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in other words, not too raving mad. <laughs> <laughs> I was pretty subdued hippie freak protester, but, you know, I was against the war in Vietnam, and I hopped onto a decrepit yellow van with some friends from college and those uh, are great stories. Oh, geez. Earth yeah. Day and pot brownies. Yeah, I kind of hate to even think about that stuff now, <laughs> especially with daughters and two brand new grandchildren. I <laughs> hate to recall those days. But, you know, it was that stuff was in the air. I was in college. I was at the University of Minnesota, and it was crazy. It was a crazy time. So you participated, or at least were aware of, the very first Earth Day. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, the U of M, Minnesota, had protests all the time, rallies all the time. I skipped classes. I skipped so many. I had to drop out of courses. So where do you come down on oil now? I mean, it's 40-plus years past Earth Day, and yet you've, your family is getting all this oil money. I mean, how much, how much money are you guys getting? It's, I say it in the book, it's roughly a couple hundred thousand a year which is many orders of magnitude more than what we were seeing before. And I hasten to add those numbers are volatile, uh, depending on well drilling. So that's what it's been since 2011. 200,000 is, is real money. It's a lot of money. Um, makes you, it wakes you up, um, gets your attention. But where I stand now, it's, uh, that's an evolving 
position, but I would have to say that after my experiences in North Dakota, and I traveled to North Dakota a couple times, once in 2012, and then again in 2013, I met a lot of people. I talked to a lot of people, including a hydraulic fracturing expert. And I guess I don't think fracking is, I think fracking is an easy target. I don't think it's the main target. I think climate change is a far more significant issue that we need to, as a society, we need to think about pretty seriously. What's been the reaction to your friends when you tell them you got North Dakota oil money? It depends on the friend. (laughs) I have friends who have said to me, oh my gosh, are you wealthy yet? And they're totally envious. And they ask a million questions. And we kind of go down that road. And then there are others. The oil boom came up. And I said, well, guess what? My family has oil rights. And they said, hmm. And they're very liberal. And they were instantly skeptical of, I think, me in general, um, because of this fact. So I've, I've heard it both ends. Oh, um, so those folks were saying, were critical of you and yes. basically saying you were part yes. of the problem now. So, yeah, so I think depending on the friend, I get wildly different reactions. My dilemma is society's dilemma. Even if you don't consider yourself an environmentalist, in a sense, I think you are because you like to breathe clean air and drink clean water. And those that value requires some decision-making. So, yeah, I, I mean, I see this book as a mirror for what society in general needs to face. Um, it's, a, it's tough. It's really hard. And when I, was, when I um, sold the manuscript to the Minnesota Historical Society Press, um, I had an ending to the book that I felt needed to change uh, mid-editorial process, and I wanted a more hopeful ending. And my editor said, you know what, this book is really hard to end. And I said, yeah, you got it. It's very hard to end because we don't know yet how this will all happen, the shift to renewables, which is definitely um, going to happen. We don't know how fast it will happen, even oil companies know it will happen. Um, So we just don't know yet how this will all play out. The name of the book is Fractured Land, The Price of Inheriting Oil. The author, Lisa Westberg-Peters, and uh, her book is published by the Minnesota Historical Society Press. Thanks again. Thank you.